Hi everyone, Leah Slaughter, hope you are doing well. I have a beast of a class today, so I apologize in advance, this is probably not gonna be a short one, so if you need to leave at any point, we will post this after to our podcast and YouTube and website. Before I get started, I've got a couple classes coming up in the next few weeks I wanna let you know about. Now, this one is scheduled right now for December 1st. Of course, this is assuming we know who our president is before December 1st. So just know this one may reschedule if the election has not been finalized, but we're gonna be speaking with CPA Howard Goodman going over what tax changes to expect now and an update on our expectations for 1031 exchanges in light of a potential presidency change. So just kind of keep your ears open for that one. We will keep you notified as to if we're gonna need to reschedule that. And then the next day, we're gonna do a overview of what the BRRR model is and how we improve on it. A lot of people don't realize what the traditional model is, and perhaps the only model you've ever seen for many of you is ours. And so we're gonna talk about how you can still do value play without having to do the model as it is traditionally done. So we'll go over that, talk about how the lending works, how the numbers work, how it saves you money, and also what those value play strategies look like. Now, before I get started, as always, everything I'm gonna talk about today is my best judgment, my best opinion, and guesses based on years of experience, both as a real estate investor and as someone who operates a real estate and property management firm. There are never guarantees with anything that we discuss. I certainly don't have a crystal ball, although I certainly do feel like we have a good grasp on not only our model and how it operates in our market, but also how it can be resilient with market changes. Of course, we recommend that you consult with those who are specialists in your life that you trust, such as your tax accountant, CPA, attorney, and anyone else who is one of the tools in your box. We are one of those items, and we are always here to help guide you. And then if it's something that is outside of our realm, we are gonna refer you to the best person we know to help you with whatever question you have. Of course, we are always gonna do our best to give you the most timely and up-to-date information. And everything that we talk about is, again, based on what we've seen and what we've experienced and what we utilize in our own market as well. So I've got a lot of items I'm gonna to cover today, but I wanted to just kind of give you an idea of what we're gonna be discussing. So first, I'm gonna give a little bit of a market update because I think it's important you understand where Texas is because there's a lot of false information out there in the news, and I'm not even talking political false information, I'm talking market information. And so I want to talk about what Texas is doing, how strong our numbers are, and why we continue to act business as usual. I'm also gonna do very briefly what a 1031 exchange is, like maybe 60 seconds, so that you understand what we're utilizing as a tool to make all this happen. And then we're gonna talk about a few different things of how we look at our two to six year model and why we do things the way that we do, because it's not the norm. It should be, but it's not. So first we're gonna look at if you have a property with a lot of equity, why you shouldn't just sit on it. And this is something that you can translate into any market nationwide. And then I'm gonna look at why cashing out is not the preferred way to handle it and why the return with the cash out is a really poor option. Then we're gonna look at 1031 exchanges and how we use them to leverage and grow the portfolio, your income and your equity. And then finally, we're gonna go over why we utilize new construction as a huge chunk of the tools that we use to increase returns and growth and be able to do this two to six year portfolio change. So before we go into the content of 
what our model is, let me talk to you about the market that we are in that allows us to do it in the first place. So MetroTex is the Realtor Association for North Texas, and there's more than one, but they're the largest, they're the oldest, and they are the one that we belong to. And one of the great things that they do, and you can go to their website and you can look at their market trend and data, not only from them, but also from A&M to keep an update on what's happening, not only in one city or one county, but the state as a whole. So the first thing that we're looking at here is the October numbers for Texas. Now you'll see that prices based compared to a year ago are up 12.1%. You'll notice that home sales are up 25%. You'll notice that our days on market for sale listings is less than it was a year ago. And that our inventory on market right now is only 2.2 months. Now there's a couple things I want to point out with this. Of course, you know Texas has had astronomical growth beyond what anybody could have ever suspected, although a few of us saw it coming, which is why we invest here. We started with 350, 360 people a day in the business boom, and now we're up to over 545 people a day relocating. That was before COVID, that was before mass relocations intensified, and I think that when we go back and we look at the numbers for next year, it's gonna blow our minds. You've got even the stock exchanges looking at coming here. It is a mass exodus to places that truly have fared the best with COVID. And it's a unique way to look at market growth because we were already this massive force and this massive growth opportunity, not only for business and no state income tax, but then you look at just how the state responded. And I'm not talking about case numbers. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about business rebounding, the ingenuity of business operations, our spaced out and spread out areas being non-dense so that we fared better because we didn't have the crises like New York and other areas did, and just the sheer working together and the ability of our government to determine what needs to be done and be consistent with it. And then when governors tried to, or not governors, when mayors tried to overstep and when city councils tried to overstep, we had a governor that came in and a state Supreme Court that came in and put their foot down. And so it's the complete operation of Texas that truly allowed us to weather the storm the way that we did. And the other piece is the storm's not over, right? So we're still in the middle of all of this and look how amazing the market is doing. And that is 100% because of the way that Texas operates and the way that we run. I talk a lot about how in the last crash, we were pumping money into our highways and into our airport to build and grow infrastructure. We were one of the only areas doing that. Everything that we do here is business-based, and that is why Texas has done so well. Yes, the policies help, not having a state income tax, doing all the incentives to get businesses to come here. There's so many things at play, but at the end of the day, what you are seeing here with our October numbers, and if you go and look at September, they're great too, but what you're seeing here is the culmination of all of those efforts and just the climate here that allows us to see what we're seeing. Now, if I look at one of our markets, so obviously we work a huge chunk of Texas, so I'm just picking Dallas because it's easy and it's where I live, but you'll notice that Texas is far above the average. Our Dallas is far above the Texas average. So 17, and I don't know why they have a comma in here. You'd think they would have caught that, but it's 17.4% up compared to last year. Our median house price is still under $285,000. Now, why is this incredible? Let me kind of back up a moment. We are the fourth largest metro in the United States, right? We are one of the largest economies in the world. We are the largest business growth center right now. 
and we still have a median home price of under $300,000. That is incredible. Think about the average house price of the other markets that are our size and our wealth and our business. Look at LA, look at New York, look at Chicago. What is their average home price? It is incredible. And then you look at the fact that closed sales are up and inventory is still very low. Time on market is still low. The days on market is just over a month in the middle of COVID. It is incredible. And what this doesn't talk about is the huge housing shortage and that there's no filling of that shortage and that builders and everyone have slowed processes because prices have gone up. The cost of material, the availability of material, we're even having trouble getting appliances for my rehabs. It is an incredible culmination of everything right now. And it physically is costing for a new construction property. The average price increase of materials based on a report that just came out is $18,000. Now, when you're building a million dollar house, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. But remember that we're talking about $150,000 and $200,000 homes here. You're talking more than a 10% price increase just in the cost of materials. A lot of the builders that we work with have absorbed that cost. And we've seen many builders have taken a hiatus. And that's because they don't want to have to charge so much more money and risk whatever's going to happen, whether it sells or doesn't. But those that are continuing to build, and especially your big builders, you can't even get something on the ground. Everything is sold out. I just helped one of our friends buy a house, and they're having to build from the ground up because there was literally nothing available. That is what we're seeing right now. And this is just looking at Dallas. Let me show you my favorite market, which is Grayson County. This is Sherman and Denison, for those of you that hear me talk about that a lot. The median price is up 20%. Your days on market for a small territory are still less than two months and closed sales are up over a third. Texas is booming. Now imagine what's gonna happen when COVID is over and all those people are ready to relocate and the businesses start those processes above and beyond what's already happening. It is going to be incredible. So this is what we are looking at here, and this is why we are so excited about what's happening. Now, I mentioned to you that on there, you can pull up other information like A&M's housing report, and this is actually out of that report, and you'll see here the percentage change by property type. It's incredible. Look at the sales increase. Look at the dollar volume increase, and look at the average price increase. Single family across the entire area is up 15% in sales price. Multifamily is up 45%. The market is incredible. Now, one thing that I want you to look at is I want you to look at rentals. I want you to look at that there is 8% less rentals on the market. Despite our growth, despite the fact that Dallas County has a 50% renter percentage and Tarrant County is 40%. And then look at the percent change in average price. No change. So I want you to remember that as we move forward today. Now, let's talk about those of you that are sitting on equity. And I'm a big broken record about this because it's a really bad call. There's a reason why your top real estate investors leverage. There's a reason why 1031 exchanges are utilized. There's a reason why so many of us are fighting to make sure that they stay around. You like your equity. You like having a low loan amount and you like having a loan to value ratio that's fantastic. But do you really? So let's break down the numbers. Let's say you have a property and you bought that property for $120,000. That property is now worth $160,000. We run into this on properties we sell every single day. You started with 20% down, and I'm using simple numbers here, so bear with me. 
$24,000 down 20%. You now have an extra $40,000 equity plus the principal you've paid down, so say around $2,000. So if you 1031 exchange and after closing costs, let's assume you have around $60,000 equity now to exchange. So with $60,000, you're now taking that one property and you're turning it into two properties with no extra cash out of pocket. So let's look at what it looks like. This is the property you're sitting in right now. And this is one of our proprietary performers. Those of you that are on our investor list, you see these all the time. It's worth $160,000, you've got 40% equity. Your cash on cash return with that equity is 6.03%. Now you might be sitting there thinking, what do you mean with my equity? My cash on cash return is based on how much I put down. And that's not accurate. The biggest mistake that I see investors make, especially those that are not high volume, you do not recalculate your returns with the extra equity you have sitting in that property. Every penny that you have equity in that property is cash you have invested because it's cash you could sell and take out. It's cash that you could 1031 and leverage back into a new property. That's still your money. It's still money in the property. So when you bought the property, the return might've been fantastic. It likely was double digits, but you rerun the numbers now and look at where you are. You're at 6.03%. And this doesn't even take into consideration repairs, guys. This doesn't take into consideration the aging systems and all the other things we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Your cash on cash return with principal pay down, which this is the amount that you're paying towards principal on your mortgage as part of your mortgage payment, which is still equity you're building. Your total return is 9.12%. Okay, that's a yearly return. Now, this is what the performer looks like if you now have bought $240,000 properties at 20% down each. Your overall return has now increased to 10.23% versus 6.03%. That's more than a 4% increase. In addition to that, your extra principal pay down makes a huge difference. You're now at 13.76 as opposed to 9.12. And assuming that these are new properties with warranties as opposed to the one you're in previously that's pre-owned with repairs, the return's gonna be even better. And that's before you get your depreciation on your tax returns and the gain of asset that you now have on your balance sheet showing that you have a higher worth. And of course, this is assuming you have a good rate on your current property loan. I spoke with my Fannie Mae lender yesterday because one of the things I wanted to talk about today is that there is no better time than the present to buy real estate. Why? 25% single family Fannie Mae loans right now, 25% down, sub $200,000. The rate is 3.125. I'm gonna say that again, 3.125. How many of us are sitting in primary mortgages on our occupied home that we live in that have rates higher than that? It is free money. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You borrow at 3.125%. Even assuming your 6.03% return, you are making money on borrowed money. It is free money. And this is all before we even start to talk about if you buy new construction, having the reduced property taxes in the beginning, or if you buy a value play property needing rehab, the fact that the tax value is likely artificially low because of condition and the fact it hasn't been redone. And on my properties, it's taking them three years to catch up. Some of mine were beyond three years and they still haven't caught up. By sitting in that property, you are doing yourself a disservice. Other benefits. Rents are increasing at a slower rate. You saw that there was a 0% increase in the last 12 months. Now, keep in mind that that's the area as a whole. Obviously, many areas we've seen significant increases, but generally we see around 2.9 to 3%. If value's going up at five or nine or 15%, you are effectively losing 
8, 10, 14% a year because your value is going up, which means that your insurance value cost and your taxes are going up, but your rent is not. In addition to that, those of you that bought newer properties or have properties that are going up, your tax bills are going up. And in many of the areas that you own in that are now part of the main metro, their tax rates are skyrocketing because they're building big buildings and city centers and lots of joint ventures with businesses to get them there. So now your property taxes are through the roof because the rate's too high. My preference is always to be in the cheapest, nice property possible. A smaller amount of money is a larger percentage of growth and the rent return is usually much better. This is why you don't see us marketing to you $300,000 and $400,000 single family homes. This is why we don't buy in the heart of the metro that does not return the same. Aging systems means more money for repairs, which means that you are spending more, which means that your return is lower. And all of that goes into your bottom line. All of that is important when you are looking at what to do with properties you own. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking I'm a long-term hold investor. It's what I do. I don't sell properties. I don't 1031. Here's the problem. You might've started with a reasonable amount of equity. But that equity, as I just showed you, has changed your cash on cash return. That equity sitting as cash you have in the deal, so your return is lower, and now your expenses are higher. So let's talk about how we do a two to six year flip plan. Let's talk about other ways that we look at the numbers, because that's just one reason, right? So this is assuming you've got a property with a bunch of equity and you're refusing to sell or you haven't sold or you're on the fence about selling and I'm here to kick your butt and tell you it's time. There's a lot of other reasons too. There's a lot of other scenarios that make sense. So let's move forward. The basics of what is a 1031 exchange, an exchange which pursuant to an agreement, the taxpayer transfers property held for productive use in trade or business or for investment and subsequently receives property to be held either for productive use in trade or business for investment. Layman's terms, what that means is you are selling one property and buying another property and you are deferring your gain and your taxes. Six basic requirements of a 1031 exchange. It has to be held for investment. So you can't be living in a home for five years and decide you're going to 1031 it today. There's a 45-day identification rule. And what that means is that when you close on the property you're selling, you have 45 days to name the new property that you're buying. You don't have to close in 45 days. You have 180 days to close. And we guide you through all of this process. Or, of course, if you're doing it on your own, you can keep track of these timelines. And it's very easy to meet. You have to have the money held with a qualified intermediary, which means you can't go put it in your bank account. You have to have specific title requirements. So whatever taxpayer the property that's sold was in, the new property has to be purchased under the same tax ID. So if you have passed through entities and things that can work a little bit differently, there can be some name differences. If it's in a trust, same thing. It's all about who the taxpayer is in the eyes of the IRS. And if you ever have a question, your exchange intermediary, they typically are run by attorneys and they can answer those questions for you. There are reinvestment requirements. So if you sell a half a million dollar property, for example, you need to go spend a half a million dollars minus your closing costs. General way of looking at it, but that's about the numbers you need to think about. And in addition to that, if you're gonna exchange into more than three properties, you cannot exceed 200%. So if you sell a half a million dollar property like I do all the time, and you're gonna go buy seven or eight properties with it because you're highly gonna leverage it, you need to make sure you close on every single one and do not exceed 200%. I did one where I sold a property for about a half a million and I went into seven or eight, I can't remember, this was recently, and I hit 198%. Luann Blau, the 1031 rep, I thought she was gonna kill me, <laughs> but this is what we do. I've got another property right now, I'm gonna do the same thing. And you know, the benefit for me is I buy a lot of property, so it's very easy for me to put together enough to make that happen and know they're gonna close. As you get more experienced and as you buy more property, as you build your portfolio, those are the types of things that you can do. Now, the equal or up to rule, 
basically what we're talking about here is the same thing. You have to buy something of equal value or beyond. Now, if you buy one, two, or three replacement properties, there's no value cap. It's only if you try to identify more than three. And I'll remind everybody, since I haven't said it yet, there is a question box here. If you have questions as I go, I will get to them as I can. And then we'll also do a Q&A session at the end. Now let's look at how a 1031 exchange in use looks. So let's go back to an assumption. You own or buy a property worth $140,000 with 20% equity, and you take an 80% loan. So at the end of year one, let's say it appreciates at 9%. That means the house is now worth 152,600. At the end of year two, it appreciates at 9%. It's now worth 166,334. Next year, let's say it drops a little bit, appreciates at 5%. Now you have 69,304 equity. And then year four, you now have 5% appreciation. You're up to $78,000 equity. And for those of you invested in Texas the last few years, this has been what you've seen. Some of you have seen more than this. So purchasing $240,000 properties requires 56,000 plus closing costs of sale and purchase. So at the end of year three, you had 69,000 and some change equity. And at the end of year four, you had 78,000 in projected equity. Now, keep in mind, this does not take into account all the money you've been making on the rents every month, nor does it take into account your principal pay down. So by the end of year three, you have enough to turn one property into two with little to no extra cash expenditure. And as I noted, you've been collecting cash flow and principal pay down in the meantime. So after a 1031, you now have two properties, both are cash flowing, both are paying down principal, and both are hopefully appreciating. Now let's look at what happens in slow market growth. You own or buy a property worth $140,000, again, with 20% equity and an 80% loan. So let's assume that the trends have changed. Let's assume the market has adjusted and let's assume that we're getting minimal appreciation. So year one, you've got 5%, you're now at 147, year two, 5%, year three, 3%, year four, 3%, year five, 3%, year six, 3%. Back to our $56,000 plus closing cost figure to go into two properties. Even with reduced appreciation, you can still double your portfolio in five to six years. Plus, your principal paydown is covering much of the cost of closing costs for the process. So you can still do it without having to add the significant cash out of pocket. So regardless of whether the property is appreciating quickly or slowly, you are doubling your depreciation, you're doubling your cash flow, you're doubling your principal paydown, and you're doubling your assets by utilizing a 1031 exchange. And remember, the better your assets, the better you are lendability-wise. But back to why do we sell in a hot market? As property values go up, I mentioned rents don't go up at the same rate. The expenses also go up on the property as they age and as the value goes up. So if you look at the rent chart here to the right, you're gonna see how rents significantly go up, one, two, three, up to maybe 4% a year, not anywhere near what we've been seeing in price growth and especially not in new construction where prices are skyrocketing and outlying areas that are seeing astronomical growth because of the fact they're cheaper to get into. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute. So therefore, the rate of return cash on cash drops as the value of your property increases. And again, this does not even take into consideration the fact that you have increased repairs as properties age. So ultimately, using 1031 exchanges during a hot market is always my preference, and I do them all the time. I have two closing in the next few days. You use the appreciation gains while they happen to build the portfolio, and then you use existing cash and reserve to require during the down markets and opportunities as they present while the market's hot when staying in the lower price point. We don't want to exceed about 210,000 per property unless you're really getting closer into the city. Now, when buying in a hot market, target properties with a purpose, redeveloping areas with a lot of inventory coming, lower price point than average home price in the area, et cetera. 
You want to buy in areas where there's a need. You want to buy in areas where there's a growth. And most importantly, you want to buy in areas that have to grow, areas that make sense to grow. Maybe they're next to the richest county, to the high growth county. Maybe it's where major employers just went in down the road. That is your sign that more is to come. And specifically when you are looking at Texas. So why not just cash out? Because a lot of you are gonna ask, why not just cash out my equity and then go buy more property? Let me show you. So say you own a property, purchase price $130,000. Your original rent rate was $1,300. Your new value is 180,000 and your new rent rate is 1,500. And just so you know, I actually modeled this off a of property. Your constants that I've not changed for the purpose of this performa is interest rate or tax rate. Obviously, there's a lot of different things that are gonna fluctuate, but we're just looking apples to apples to keep it simple. So here's your initial purchase performa. Purchase price 130,000, 20% down, monthly rent at 1,300. And what you'll see here is that your cash on cash return was about 14.57 and your equity was good and your cash flow was good. Now let's look at what it looks like now. Look at your new return. Look at what we're looking at now. This is what I'm talking about. Your cash on cash return in that same property now is 6.18%. Your equity is 76,000. Your cash flow is 4,600. That's a 7.18% cash on cash return drop before we even consider repairs. It's pretty crazy, right? And these are the things that we don't think about. Now, if you keep that property and you cash out, this is what it looks like. 180,000, you've now cashed out to 75%. So you've left 25% equity still. Your cash on cash return in the beginning was 14.57, now it's 6.3. Your cash flow is now 28.34. That's an 8.27% cash on cash return drop. Now. If on the new property, all you could get was 6.3%, okay, maybe that would make sense. But no, by selling, you have two properties now making more than 6.3%. And again, this is before repairs are even calculated. So my thoughts, number one, aging systems mean higher repair costs. The need for renovation and rehab to bring it back to today's standards, the longer you're in a property, the more it's gonna become functionally obsolete. And then the higher price point often slows the speed at which equity builds. Cheaper properties are gonna appreciate and move at the fastest rate. Having to wait for 20% equity in a half a million dollar house is a lot harder than waiting for 20% equity in a $140,000 house. And these are the types of things that we talk about. Now, using equity to buy new properties. So this is what we're looking at when we're talking about reusing this money, okay? So we take that equity that you had and we go and we buy new properties. So now what we're looking at is, and this is a property we just sold, just so I'm clear. This is not some made up figure that I'm using. This is an actual property we just sold, a new property. Your cash on cash return up front with the property tax savings at land only value is over 20%. And then after when it resets to full purchase price times tax value, which we typically don't see that for years, but let's say it happens almost immediately, your return is 9.25%. So your cash flow with the two properties is now $7,000 a huge difference. Now let's talk about new construction because I, I do talk about why I like new construction a lot and I want to make sure that you understand why I think this is such an important part of a portfolio and even me who I've bought I don't know 80 units this year I still bought new construction this year. Why? Number one warranties and systems for reduced costs. Modern standards finishes are designed to last. Granite countertops, vinyl wood flooring, thick baseboards, upgraded everything. They're class A to the extreme more properties with depreciation to reduce tax liability. So we wanna make sure that we are doing everything we can to limit the taxes that we owe. 
all of our real estate investment goals are to have enough depreciation that we don't owe any taxes. It offsets all of our income. Diversifying your risk across more than one property. The more properties you own, the better it is. You bought back at entry level to allow the price to grow again. Back to that thought process of the cheaper property is going to be your best option. And then, of course, that initial property tax incentive allows accelerated return in the beginning again and again and again, every time we 1031 and every time we rebuy. So by continuing to go back into new construction, you're never going to sit in that low return after it adjusts. You're going to be able to take advantage of reduced property taxes. And often when I decide to sell, and I actually just did this two weeks ago in my portfolio, I looked at which of my properties property taxes went through the roof, went up to full value. And those are the ones I chose to 1031 and list. So this is the way that I look at my numbers and I highly encourage you start doing the same. Now, let's go back to new construction. New systems are a lower cost of maintenance and ownership. So it's a great way to offset when you want a passive income portfolio. It targets high growth developing areas with new infrastructure, huge growth and relocating and expanding employers. It often usually offers reduced property taxes at that beginning of ownership. So there is some increased return Often you can buy in at the beginning of development before prices skyrocket. I showed you what's happened in Grayson County in the last year. Builder warranties and affordable extended home warranty protection options can give you up to five years almost worry-free. So what does that look like? A 1-2-10 warranty such as Centricity on the right here is gonna be a one-year everything, two-year systems that's plumbing, electrical, HVAC, and 10-year structural. Manufacturers warranty on a lot of items in the property. And then we have a home warranty that we recommend. It costs under $700 total for four years of coverage that covers years two, three, four, and five. So the goal with this is by the time that warranty is up, you've sold. But that warranty has to be added at purchase. Now, I get asked a lot why outlying areas. Number one, the uniqueness of the layout of our highways and our metros really allow this to happen. So looking at North Texas, we have the second largest number of freeway miles per capita in the U.S. We have an easy to navigate bus and light rail system, very similar to Houston. High speed limits, HOV lanes, and toll roads were designed to enable people to commute a longer distance in less time, which opens more areas to population growth, development, and all those things that we're targeting in these areas. They're also more dense, they're more spread out, and cheaper price points. People can get more for their money. And in light of everything that we've seen happen this year, people really want that. They want to save money, but they want a great, nice place. And most importantly, they want to have space. And finally, less undesirable area factors like crime, like old and aging schools. You know, anyone who lives in Dallas knows Dallas ISD is not the best. You come up to a lot of the suburbs and they're quite incredible. So there's a huge difference in the ability and the way that people live in the suburbs as opposed to the city. And for some people, the city's great. I'm not a city girl. I was born and raised in the city and we moved as far out as we could. And I live on two acres, 10 minutes from Plano. And I'm blessed enough to be able to do that. But I don't know that I'd be able to make it back in the city. You know, you get accustomed to having space. And it's funny because I travel and I go speak all around the U.S. And every time I wind up in L.A. or San Francisco, I, I feel claustrophobic. And you don't understand the difference until you come and you visit and you see how we're laid out. And it's not a fit for everybody. But in light of everything that's happened this year, I think that we are going to continue to see a huge push to go to the expansive cities and the expansive metros like you see in Texas and like you see in Florida. That is the majority of what I wanted to cover, but I do have a couple of questions. So I'll go through those and I'll do a final call for Q&A. So number one, I've heard in Texas they're considering losing property tax rates. Is that true? 
I assume you're talking about perhaps stopping property tax, and no, that won't happen. Um, property taxes will remain. It's one of the ways that we remain with no state income tax, and it's certainly a better savings than having to pay a state income tax, and certainly in a business climate like we are here. So I don't foresee that happening. Now, I also see some questions about property tax rates going up, and we actually have been seeing a lot of property tax cuts Oh, you were asking about property tax lowering. Perfect. Yes, property taxes have been getting lowered. Now, why is that? And this is not everywhere, but it is happening in a lot of places. The reason is because values have gone up so much that now the property tax base is so much higher and there's a lot of growth. And so the suburbs that were very empty that already had low tax rates now have a lot more taxpayers. They have a lot more property taxes. And so they have a surplus in their budget. And so now because of that, they've been able to cut their budgets and be able to pass that along to the taxpayers. And so that's a huge thing happening right now and it is helping returns, but we have kept our numbers at the original tax rates for all of our performance for right now. And that's because we don't know if they'll go back up or what's going to happen, if expenses are going to go up. So we try to err on the side of caution. But yes, a lot of the areas that we're talking about here have seen property tax cuts. The one thing that brings me pause is a lot of these cities are doing massive infrastructure growth plans, huge city buildings and all sorts of things. And so often some of that tax savings or all of that tax savings they may pass back into paying for those buildings and paying for the bonds that build them. We actually just went through this in our city that I live in, which is a tiny little 5,000 person city, and they wanted to spend almost $10 million on a city building. Um, actually, it was such a concern that Michael actually run for city council and won a few days ago on election day. So it's happening everywhere. And in our case, because the average home value is like $900,000 in my city, there's a huge surplus in property taxes because of all the new construction and the price growth. But what wasn't happening was a savings being passed along. And the argument is we already have one of the lowest tax rates. We already have low tax rates. Well, in my opinion, at some point that tax savings needs to be passed back and not just put into infrastructure. And that's what we're starting to see pushback on now. And that's the changes that we're starting to see. I've got a question asking me about my opinion on the San Antonio market. I like San Antonio. I personally don't buy in San Antonio only because I don't think the job market is as diverse and as strong as North Texas and Houston. And many, many years ago, I was pretty hesitant on Houston because it was so oil and gas dependent. And although it still is, because of all the corporate relocations and everything that's been happening, San Antonio, Houston, and of course, Dallas, Fort Worth have seen massive increase in the diversification of employment. So I like San Antonio and probably if I had the time, I would be buying some down there. But generally when I'm looking for the best bang for my buck from an appreciation standpoint and from a growth standpoint and also a stability in a downturn market, which I don't foresee coming, but if that were to happen at some point in the future, I would feel more confident in my North Texas portfolio than I would in a San Antonio portfolio. Um, yeah, okay, so I've got a couple questions about who point of contact is to go over questions and extra stuff on this. You can reach out to me and I'll give you my info here. This is my email, Michael and I actually share this one. So whichever one of us is first available, we'll get back to you. Let me keep filtering through these. In Arizona, I own a large number of Section 8 properties that I converted from new properties. How is that a strategy for Texas? I'm looking to build portfolio in Texas now since I'm moving there. We used to do a lot of Section 8, especially in the crash, which you know Dallas fared really well and so did most of our markets here. But the problem with Section 8 is twofold. Well, really threefold. So from a logistical standpoint, 
we do a two month re-renting period on our leases. So what that means is the last two months of every lease, we're showing and marketing the properties. With Section 8, you can find a Section 8 tenant, but you can't actually do the paperwork and inspections and everything until the home is vacant and rent ready. So you lose a lot of marketing time and then it delays the move-in process. So if you do Section 8, you are essentially signing yourself up for one to two months vacant every single term. In addition to that, the only time you can get a rent increase is one, if the rent numbers match between housing and what you think the market dictates, and I'll go over that in a second, and then number two, the voucher has to be for enough and they have to have money in the budget to allow increases. So I'd say probably three of the last five years, they weren't even allowing increases. Now, housing vouchers are based on FMR or a percentage of fair market rents. So you may have one housing authority that runs rent numbers, comes up with the standard or the market standard for a zip code and they go at 100% of fair market rent. Well, then you may have another one that goes at 105%, and there's certain programs like the Walker Settlement Program in Dallas that go up to 125% or 120%. Then you've got some housing authorities that go at 80 or 90 or 95%. And generally what we see is that in a market like what we're in right now, you're going to get a lot more money outside of Section 8 than you will in Section 8. And when you pair that with the fact that you've got more occupants per property, which often means higher turnover costs, the vacancy you're signing up for, the inability to use the two-month re-renting period, it's not a huge push for us. I personally own a lot of Class C and D apartments. I don't have any Section 8 in those, so that should probably tell you something. I actually manage for some of the nonprofits that work with Section 8, and so I'm a huge fan of it. There's a huge need for it. But from an investment standpoint, coming out of Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and these big markets that are so strong, uh, I just I haven't seen a need for it. Now, if the market were to crash again, which knock on wood, that's not going to happen. But if that ever were to happen, I think that you would see Section 8 coming back much stronger. Now, there's also been some changes with the vouchers where and I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, but there's more occupants allowed per property now with a lower bedroom voucher. And it's because of whether boys and girls can share bedrooms and whether a child sleeps with a parent and different housing authorities have done different things. So a lot of the vouchers cut down and that happened one to two years ago for the most part. But the vouchers are just not as many for the, the big bedroom count that there were, and there's a lot more occupants now. So that also concerns me from just a sheer wear standpoint. Additionally, they often are very low qualified, and so they have really bad credit. And that's always a concern as well for collectability on the back end, and they typically can't afford huge deposits. So it's kind of a, a double whammy there too. Um, where can you find the replay? That will be on the website, that will be on YouTube, and that will be on all of our podcast channels. Uh, let's see. Um, here's one. I bought my investment home with OmniKey in September for 181. So in two years when the value hits 210 time to exchange. Yes, absolutely. And the goal is that every year when it comes up for renewal, we're going to let you know what the market's doing. And we're going to constantly be in front of you with these classes and market updates telling you what it's been. And if you ever want to know where the value is now or in the future, you can always just reach out to the investment team and they'll let you know those details. And that's whether you are someone who bought it from us or whether you have a property you're sitting in. So Will Clark has been with me for over five years. He's amazing. He does all of our investment sales with me, which means that when we have a property that we're going to sell out of in 1031 exchange. And so whether you're buying with us or not, we do handle the entire sales process of investment properties. And we really, I, we have an amazing team. I can't say that enough. Everything that we do is because number one, we're family owned and we've got this, this incredible environment for that. But also we've just got amazing people and I'm, I'm proud to say that they were all trained in my image. And so uh, people that you're working with are very like-minded to me in terms of investment strategies and all of that because they learned everything they know from me. So 
Um, okay, are the price points today in Dallas, Plain and McKinney areas too high today to be unattractive with cash flow? With Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you do not want to buy in the heart of the city. Number one, so one of the things we look at when we look at outlying areas is their need to grow. There's so much growth happening that there are some cities that physically don't have enough infrastructure to support it. And those are the areas that we're targeting. You look at Dallas, Plano and McKinney, they have so much infrastructure. Not only are the returns low because the prices are so high and they've already skyrocketed some to points that I think are too high, but also they don't have to keep growing. If there needs to be a softening in commercial or in whatever is going to happen, those areas are okay. The areas that we're talking about, the areas we deal in, they physically don't even have enough room in their schools sometimes for all this growth, which is why most of the schools and the businesses and everything in these areas are all brand new. And that's why we love that infill. Uh, thoughts on closing on new construction end of the year versus in the new year. So the property taxes, the way that it works, and this is the only reason why timing truly matters, is it's assessed as of the construction and the cons basically the, the status of that property January 1st. So if you buy, say, April or May, if the property wasn't started in January, you're going to have a bigger property tax incentive time. But on the same hand, you're going to have more competition and fewer properties being completed that time of year. So often this time of year is when you get the best values and you get the best selection. But if you want the biggest potential time of that property tax incentive for the extra few months, then you want to close right before summer. Now, that being said, as I mentioned, typically they don't get to full purchase price year two. So on most of the properties I've acquired and what I've seen from clients, we're getting benefits below full purchase price times tax rate for two to three years and beyond. Of course, again, no crystal ball, no guarantees, but that is what we're seeing. Here's a question. What happens if you want to business use instead of primary use for money out to invest instead of 1031 exchange, prime location with limited homegrown area? Uh, if you're talking about you want to use business income to invest or cash you already have, absolutely, that's always an option. And that's what a lot of people do. And people like me are not only using 1031 exchanges, but we're also using money that we have. But the point of what we're talking about today is how buying a property and what you do with that property is what allows you to continue to double your portfolio to get you there with no extra cash expenditure. Of course, you can always keep buying properties to buy more properties. And then we go back to this discussion of what to do with it as the value rises. Um, let's see. Is Houston still doing okay growth-wise? Yes, Houston is. And as a matter of fact, I will, since I talk so much about North Texas and not as much about Houston, I'm going to send myself an email here. We will do a Houston market update quick webinar sometime in the next month. That way you guys can have a feel for how that's doing. All right, next. Do you look at properties out of Texas? No. No, we're licensed in Texas. And climate-wise, I don't see another state. Florida's close. But I don't see really anything right now that gives me enough comfort in other markets. I personally own two homes in Florida. They're both vacation property. And I only bought them because I use them. And as soon as I bought the new one, I immediately put the other one up for sale and it's under contract. So that's not to say that there's not plans with us to move into Oklahoma and potentially Louisiana. But we have to look at all of the numbers and how the markets differ. And like with Oklahoma, for example, there's a state income tax. And so we have to really make sure that the numbers that we want and the model we want and the laws allow us to do what we do. And if I can't offer a product somewhere where the return is going to be the same for my clients and for me, 
then we're not going to go into that market. We're not going to grow just to grow. We grow because it offers a service to you and it offers a service to me in my own investment journey. And so obviously we'll keep you apprised as we move forward with that. The one thing that we are going to be doing, and I haven't formally announced it yet, but since there's so many of you on here, I might as well go ahead and make a small announcement before we send it out. We are moving into the vacation rental market in North Texas and likely Houston as well. And so be on the lookout for some marketing about that as well. It's a different way to diversify and certainly something that you can make very good money at if you buy right. And so we'll be talking about that more. And a lot of the areas that we already do our new construction in are vacation market areas like Grayson County, Sherman, Denison, all of that. That's where Lake Texoma is, huge vacation rental market. So if that's something that you're interested in, we can talk about that as well. Uh, updates on the future of the 1031 exchange. Right now, it doesn't look like there's going to be any issues. Um, you know, we it, it appears the Republicans are going to retain the Senate, which is going to make tax changes and things much harder. And that'll be what we talk about on that class I mentioned that right now is scheduled for, I think, December 1st. So as long as we have a really good idea of what's happened with the Senate and with the presidency, we'll be able to do that class on time. And we may still do one just talking about what we think at that stage, but it's all going to depend on what happens over the next few weeks. Uh, next question, do we work with fixed flip properties? Yes, we do. Um, and so if you're not on our investor list, if you want to join that, then you'll get access to those as well. We do about 70% new construction, 30% pre-owned to put that into perspective. Um, how do you know on these new properties, what are the best debt ratio, 20, 30, 40? Okay, maximum leveraging is always your best option. That's always going to give you your best return generally. However, right now, there's such a benefit for 25% down on Fannie Mae. If you're going to go conventional financing, go 25% down. Uh, the goal is to have as many properties as you can, to have as much principal pay down, as much appreciation, as much depreciation on your taxes, and as much cash flow as possible. Every extra penny you put in a property takes me back to that slide I went through that shows you how low the return is when you sit on that much equity. Whether you gain the equity or whether you put it down day one is irrelevant. The bottom line is you have the equity. What is the best process of selling rental properties with tenants? I have a property management company, but they have a vested interest to make it difficult. These properties are in Memphis. So here's my recommendation. If your property manager is someone that you feel would make it more difficult for you to sell, you're probably with the wrong property manager. So that's just me being blunt. Now, from a logistical standpoint, assuming that you have a property management company that you think is going to make it more difficult, I would hire an outside agency to sell. Yes, it's more convenient to sell with the property manager for access and everything else. But if you don't love your property manager and you don't feel that they're going to treat you the same if you're not reinvesting with them, hire an outside agent. If you ever need a referral for someone, I'm with tons of investor groups and referral networks, I can get you a name. Just reach out. Have you looked at Denton County? How does it compare? Denton County is extremely expensive. It's Denton itself is one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. And the problem with Denton is rent rates are very low relative to value. So it does have some great opportunities for certain projects, but generally Denton County is quite expensive. There are parts of North Denton County that we do operate in, in terms of finding some properties but you're not going to see the same return as Denton County as you are above it. So if you go past Denton County, then you get up to the next county, which has cities like Gainesville, which I love Gainesville. So Gainesville is the equivalent on the Denton County side to what Sherman and Denison is going up 75. So just two major highways, both go north towards Oklahoma. Both are an hour from Oklahoma and um, Gainesville is amazing. And so we, we love Gainesville, but it's a little bit more expensive than Sherman and Denison. And Sherman and Denison has really piggybacked on the growth going into Collin County and then, you know, 
Denison and Sherman have Tyson Foods, Texas Instruments. They have Finisar, who does the Apple Face ID technology. Major, major employers up there, and it's a half hour into the big, big employers of the main county. So uh, Gainesville and the areas beyond Denton County, it's a little bit further. But areas like Crum, we were selling many years ago. And we just, we keep moving our radius outward and we'll stay inward as long as we can, as long as the returns continue to make sense. So Jim, if Denton County is something you're interested in, we would look at pre-owned for that most likely. Uh, is Aubrey the best place to buy investment properties? No, Aubrey is one of those areas that has skyrocketed in value. Your return is going to be most likely mediocre. And if you ever want me to assess a return for you, you're more than welcome to send it over and I'll take a look at that. I live in West Frisco looking for investment properties closer to West Frisco. Uh, send me an email, Rashmi, and we can talk in detail about what you're looking for. Um, I've got someone asking if we're hiring realtors. Yes, we are. We have uh, always have positions available. Someone run the kitchen by just doing real estate investments. I'm not sure what you mean by that, uh, by running the kitchen. If you want to send me another question here, I'll try to answer that. I think I've hit everything. If we've got still a lot of people on here, if anybody has any other follow-up questions, I'll give it a couple minutes for you guys to send those. And then of course you can always reach out to me here. My, my email's there and then that's my direct extension and always happy to chat. And if you have a property you want us to look at and make a recommendation on, I'm always happy to do that. And one thing I can always tell you is I'm gonna be blunt and I'm gonna call it straight. And so, um, you know, one of the things that, is real important when you're looking at numbers is to not get attached and to not have an emotional attachment to your properties. And that's something that's really hard for investors sometime. And so it's it's good to have a third party look at it, whether it's us or someone else, because it removes that level. I always tell the story that I own a historic apartment complex in downtown Wiley. It was the first multifamily I ever bought. And we, I'm sure, should have sold it years ago. I mean, the value has skyrocketed and the amount of money that we could get for it relative to what we even got rents to is crazy. But my husband, Michael, is attached to this building. He loves it. And every time we meet someone who realizes what that building is and, and you know, its history, it used to be, I guess, where the nuns lived across from the Catholic Church. And it's just got crazy history. So I can't convince him to sell it. And even those of us that are huge volume investors, we still sometimes get stuck in that emotional attachment to a property. And he'll never let me sell that building. We're gonna die and that's gonna be part of our estate. But uh, it's a good reminder for why you've gotta sometimes take a step back and, and look at what your long-term goal is and what job you're trying to get out of or what retirement you're trying to build or passive income you're trying to create. And sometimes we have to take an uncomfortable path because for a lot of people, the idea of 1031 exchanging and building that portfolio can be really domineering. Um, even sometimes Michael and I, we buy so many properties. Sometimes he's like, can we just like take a month? But for me, it's very much about what my goals are and, and what drives me. And you have to love what you do. And I always tell people that want to invest, if you don't love the idea of being a property manager yourself, because even if you hire one, you're still going to be doing something. And if you're buying in other markets, not every company operates like we do. And if you don't like the idea of being a landlord, and if you don't like the idea of being someone in debt, it's not for you. But if you want to make money and you want to build something passive and you want to not be beholden to someone else and working until, and, and who knows if the government's even going to be able to support us when we retire. So there's just so many reasons. And then at the end of the day, it's all about teaching the right lessons for our kids and setting them up for the right future. And I can't tell you how many people I know who bring their kids along on tours and start buying properties for their kids and teaching their kids at a young age. And it's really quite incredible because this is, in my opinion, the easiest way 
to have passive income, not have to work till you die, and be able to have a quality of life that is more than just working. And so for me, it's it's something I love. It's all I've ever done. For those of you that don't know, I, I got into this business at 18. It's literally all I've ever done, and I love it. And so I love this process, and I love buying properties and 1031 exchanging and helping all of you do the same. It's not a fit for everybody, but you just need to know if you sit in that property and you sit on that equity and you don't do it, you're just losing return every year. So that's the biggest message we always want to bring is as long as you have all the facts and you have all the information, you can make the best decisions for yourself, whatever that may be. Uh, let's see. Will the vacation rentals be like Airbnb managed? Yes, they will be. Uh, we'll use VRBO, Airbnb, and others. We use Travelocity and everything else. I was the guinea pig. I did it first to make sure I liked it and that I felt the returns are good. And of course, you're still sitting in the same properties. Often the returns can be a little bit higher, but of course, then you have a vacancy factor. So it all depends on, on what you're looking for. And we're all about diversification. And certainly I don't mean diversification into stocks and everything else because they're just too volatile. You know, the problem is so many other ways you diversify are like gambling. And I don't like gambling. I like knowing that my money is safe and secure. And at the end of the day, your property can burn to the ground and it still has value because you're insured. And it's just one of those things that you can't say about virtually any other investment. So um, how can you be added to our investor list? So you can send me an email or you can reach out to the investment team. That's investments at omnikeytexas.com. And they will send you over the intro. We use an investor portal. So you'll get your own access login and you'll get blasts every time there's new properties. And then we do exclusive property webinars almost every week of hot properties that we have available. And Jason Bales typically does those or myself going over that available inventory. Um, let's see, uh, do we have duplexes or quads coming up? Yes, we always have duplexes or quads. We have both pre-owned and new. Thank you for all the kudos, everybody. Me and my husband's investment goals, what are they? Um, I I was hoping to hit 100 properties this year or 100 units this year, and we're really close. We're really close. I still might do it. Um, and then next year, I'd like to hit maybe 150, but it's all going to, you know, time is the biggest commodity, right? Because I have to make sure I have time to do my stuff too. And so for me, we did a lot of multifamily this year. I bought a 24 unit in the last year. I bought an eight unit. I bought a five unit, ton of duplexes. We did a 10 unit. We did a lot of small multifamily this year. And I did that because it's a lot of bang for the buck. But um, there's, there's a lot of worker shortages right now. And so for me, I have to make sure that I don't pluck from my team. So to kind of give you background, we've got almost 20 people in-house maintenance and repairs and make readies renovations at OmniKey. And so when we have investors who are buying pre-owned properties, we've got plenty of staff to be able to do that. And so kind of my, my rule is we're not plucking them. We're using third parties, even though it's more expensive for me, that way we always make sure that we can continue to fill the pre-owned needs of customers. And so scalability is difficult beyond where we already are. So I'd love to hit 150 next year. That would be a huge goal. But I just don't know, especially with the value plays that we buy in apartments, that we'd be able to do that. So maybe maybe 100 next year again. I'd like to be at 1,000 or 1,500 or maybe 2,000 by the end of the decade. So we'll see where that goes. But um, it's it's an interesting thing because a lot of people, it's it's the money piece that's difficult. And for us, it's the logistics piece. And so everyone's got their you know stepping stones on their ladder to be able to get to where they want to go. And we all just have to navigate them how we can. And um, you know the other thing is just making sure that it's it's not too much. <laughs> I work about 60, 65 hours a week. And so at some point, 
um, you know, want to take take some time. But we've we've really tried to be picky in what we're buying, which for me is hard because I I see properties and I see the numbers and I fall in love immediately. And um, but then we sit on them because we don't have a crew to put on them. And so, you know, personally, I do that and I'll take that risk. And I've got some now that I sat on for a few months and we're just now starting the rehab. But the numbers were so good I didn't care. And so it'll be interesting to see what next year holds. Um, you know, I obviously try not to get into politics on this, but if Trump wins re-election and this vaccine comes out, if that is the path that we take, I don't even know that any of us understand how insane the growth is going to be in the market. And it doesn't matter whether you like Trump or hate him. It's just he's good for the market. And if that happens, then I, we're all going to be so busy. And, and DFW and Houston, I, they're just booming. I don't even think that any of us know what the high is going to be. I, I think there's a path that could happen in the next decade or two where we become like New York and like California. And I don't even know what that would look like, but do I think that that's a, a very viable path right now? I absolutely do. And I don't, I don't mean look like them in terms of like having state income tax and all of that. I mean, look like them in terms of values rising and, and density in the main metros. And I just, the market's just incredible right now. I, I mean, I go back to the numbers, look at the numbers in the middle of COVID, what we're dealing with. It's just unbelievable. Uh, let's see, on insurance, do you ever buy flood or sinkhole? Um, I have flood insurance on, I have a beachfront property. Uh, I have flood insurance on that. I have an ex excess policy on that. So for those of you that, that don't know how flood works, you, you get like FEMA limits in an area. And so I think the FEMA limit on my property was like a quarter million and I wanted a million or something. So I bought FEMA limits. And um, other than that, we don't really deal in floodplains. I think in my whole career, I've maybe dealt with three or four properties in, in floodplains now. In Houston and Galveston and other coastal areas we manage, a lot of those properties have flood insurance. And if you own in Houston, I always recommend flood insurance because one of the problems with Houston is you never know where it's gonna flood. So we do deal in that, but in terms of what we sell, we typically don't deal in flood floodplains. We had some great new construction from one of our off-market builders that came to us a couple of weeks ago and Jason and I discussed and turns out it was in a floodplain, so we didn't even bring it to you guys. Uh, and we just, we try not to, we like simple, we like passive. And when you start throwing in all those little wrenches, it just gets more difficult for us and for you. And that goes completely against everything we're trying to do. Uh, Rashmi, I, I see your questions here. Reach out to me separately and we can talk about uh, the partnership you're looking for. And how many homes did you buy when first starting out? Okay, so my first year I bought four um, and I did traditional new construction on three of those and one was a pre-owned. And I sold some of those a year later and we just kind of blew up from there. If you look at, I did a class, can't remember what it was called. It was something like how we started a property management company as teenagers. We went over some of our investment journey in there and uh, also just our personal home ownership journey because we bought our first house at 18. So we, we knew day one what we wanted to do. It was very clear to us. And so, uh, but we also talked about how those properties we leveraged and, and did the same kind of continue to exchange with that too, just in a little bit different way. But I think that's all the questions, everybody. And I appreciate so many of you sticking this out so long. I knew this would be a long one, but I love them when they're long like this because it means it's great content. And of course, if you have any follow-up questions, you guys know how to reach me. And as always, we appreciate you being a part of the OmniKey family and uh, wishing everybody a safe and happy Thanksgiving if you don't see me again before then. Thanks so much, take care, and I will see everyone soon for the next class.